This is Reno Levison, executive producer at ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com, and I'd like to introduce Jeopardy! champion Brian Chang, whose seven-day winnings totaled $165,904. Now here's my guest from Jeopardy!, Brian Chang. That was my lame but very best homage to uh, Jeopardy! announcer Johnny Gilbert. You can tell me how well I did. It was perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Who is incidentally, did you know, 92 years old? And has You're kidding. Been, no, and he's been the announcer since 1984. I looked it up. It's on Wikipedia, so it has to be true. Good for him. Still ticking, still full of energy. Um, I can't imagine the show without him. It, it's absolutely amazing to me. So I think that's very cool. And by the way, on, here on ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com, I like to make the point that we are age diverse. And so um, I think that the idea of Johnny Gilbert working and doing what he does at 92 years old with all the enthusiasm that he does is just phenomenal. And let's hope we're doing something like that when we're 92. Yeah, knock on wood. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to tell my listeners that uh, Brian is a Chicago transplant, originally from Davis, California. You can tell me if any of this is wrong. He's an attorney, and I might add a bass clarinetist in Windy City Winds. I recently did an interview with the co-directors, Mark and Sarah Mosley, that can be found here at chicagobroadcastingnetwork.com, and we'll talk about that and more. And so officially, Brian, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Rena. Now, today we'll talk about Jeopardy, we'll talk about Windy City Wins, and then we're going to end with a few Chicago trivia questions. Is that okay? Absolutely. I'm a little nervous about the trivia, but I'll do my best. I have to imagine this puts a lot of pressure on you. You know, people will probably just stop and ask you random questions all the time just to see if you know the answer, right? Exactly. And my deep, dark secret is I'm not really all that good at trivia. I'm okay at trivia, but I think I'm pretty good at the gameplay of Jeopardy. And I think that's how I did as well as I did. Sweet. Okay, good. That's what I want to know, because I am an absolutely huge, I'm sure people say this all the time, but I am a huge Jeopardy fan. I record it every day. I don't always get to listen to it every day, so or watch it every day, and sometimes I'll binge watch two or three. Uh, lately, during this whole um, you know past year, we've been in the habit of watching it before we go to bed at night, because Julie, my wife, finds that it just sort of calms her down. I have a tendency to watch the news or something before we go to bed, and she says, I don't want to hear that before I go to bed. You know? No, that will spike your blood pressure. Jeopardy yeah. is calming. Sometimes exactly. there are moments that are not so calming, but for the most part, exactly. relaxing, you learn something. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's fun and it's, it's just relaxing. So the first thing that I think everybody wants to know is how do you prepare for the test? And then how did you prepare once you knew you were going to be on the show? Or did you prepare at all? What did, what did you do? You're just maybe just a naturally smart guy. No, that, that really wasn't it. Uh, I was the beneficiary of uh, learning about a website called uh, jarchive.com, where uh, a couple people painstakingly transcribe every clue from every episode of Jeopardy. Wow. And that ends up being a really good repository for the types of questions that are on the show, or I should say the types of answers and questions that are on the show. Yeah. And a lot of material gets reused, uh, not in with the exact same wording, but the same sorts of things come up. Sure. In sort of Shakespeare plays, you see um, Hamlet and Macbeth will come up more often than, say, Twelfth Night or Coriolanus. Okay. And so you get a feel for it. I think you also get that feel from watching the show. 
especially for someone as loyal as you to the show. Without I a doubt, I, I see that. I see those kinds of trends. And you're right. I remember Alex Trebek saying, the best Jeopardy question is the one when the person at home goes, oh, I knew that. They want you to know the answer to the question. They're not trying to really trick you up. So where I think a lot of uh, contestants make mistakes is they try to think it's a trick question and it's really not. Just go with the obvious, right? Exactly. I think that's exactly right. And I think there's a tendency for people who have sort of spent their life doing tough trivia uh, to maybe overthink a Jeopardy clue. Because you're absolutely right that Jeopardy, it's for the contestants, but it's also for a TV audience. Mm -hmm. And a show where a TV audience is unable to answer anything, no one would watch that. That wouldn't be very much fun at all. Right, exactly, yeah. And, you know, it's happened. You've probably seen it too, you know, where a whole category will go and like nobody knows the answer to that. And I'm yeah, sure usually a sports category. Yeah, <laughs> And that writer probably doesn't get invited back again. Either. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who did write for Jeopardy, and I've never really talked to her that much about it. And sometime I have to, I should have her on and have her talk about what it's like to write for Jeopardy. That must be incredibly difficult. And they do a really, really good job. I think one of the cool things about Jeopardy clues, especially Final Jeopardy, is that there are hints along the way. The, the clue writer is trying to drop little breadcrumbs little wordplay things oh, that's, to get the contestant to the, the correct response. And that's, and that's the really fun part of it too, the, the clever little, you know, and that's, it often gives you, you know, just what you need to know. You may not know the answer, but obviously the little tip is what tips you off to what the, what the answer is going to be. Exactly. So, so now you taped on, uh, if my notes are right, December 1st, Jan, uh, 2020, right? That's right. And, and so that was just a month after um, longtime popular Jeopardy host Alex Trebek passed away, which was in November. Correct, yeah. Think about that, right? So how much of a disappointment was that, that Alex wasn't there? You know, are you a, as a big enough Jeopardy fan that that was a disappointment for you? And then oh, also, sure. how did you feel about having Ken Jennings as your, uh, as your host for your episodes? Yeah, Alex Trebek is iconic. I remember watching Jeopardy ever since, gosh, maybe I started watching when I was five years old over dinner with my parents and we would shout out the answers to the clues that we knew. Sure. And having that continuous presence in our life, I kind of think of Alex Trebek as the equivalent of the Queen of England yeah. for America. Steady figure, this Walter Cronkite-like voice of authority, voice of um, learnedness and calm and class. And he was always there. And I think his passing was very, very tricky for the show. I think the show wanted to honor that legacy, but needed to continue it and continue it quickly to make sure that there would not be a drop off in, um, in terms of ratings, in terms of interest. So I had taken the test and I was waiting to hear back on whether I would actually get to go onto the show. And then one morning I woke up and I saw the news that Alex Trebek had passed. And I realized, oh, well, I'm probably not going to get on the show because the show is probably going to be on hiatus for some time sure. while they figure out who the host is going to be. So I was pretty surprised when I got the call uh, to go on the show. Very pleased, but um, I, I was very surprised at how quickly it came after uh, Alex Trebek passed. Can, you know, that's something that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, so you must have thought, oh, my goodness, this isn't even going to happen. And by the way, I think they've done just a tremendous job uh, with these guest hosts. I think it's a lot of fun and putting that space because this is very much like a um, um, rebound girlfriend or, yeah. you know, where 
first one's going to look really good, but you know, you know what I'm saying. And, and they don't want to, you know, really jump right in and, and get somebody right away. I'm sure they have a short list. I'm sure they may even know who it's going to be. And of course, you've got Ken Jennings, who, by the way, I'll just say that's who I'm rooting for at the moment. I think, uh, you know, his love for the game is great. But how did you feel about having uh, Ken Jennings as the, as the host? And how do you think he did? I think he did a phenomenal job. He did it with very little preparation. I was only his second day of taping. Wow. Um, but, you know, he won 74 games and he's won a bunch of tournaments. So he's very, very familiar with the show. Yeah. Uh, but I think he's exactly the host that I would have wanted. He's someone who appreciates the game. He understands what it's like to be a contestant on the show. He understands the legacy that, that Oscar Beck was leaving. Fundamentally, I think the show stays the same from host to host, mm -hmm. but it's not exactly the same. Each host brings a little something to the table. And um, and I think Ken really did a great job. I I didn't know it was going to be Ken until I got to the studio. Sure. She didn't tell us in advance. Okay, good. Um, and so really it could have been anyone. I was guessing it would probably be Ken. I'd heard rumors that he was being considered as a host. Yeah. I'd also heard a lot of internet chatter about LeVar Burton. Sure. So I was sort of hoping it would be him. I grew up watching uh, Reading Rainbow and Star Trek The Next Generation. And LeVar Burton is another one of those great voices of uh, pro-education. Okay. Uh, in a similar way, I think, to Alex. So those were my top two choices for the who the host would be. Okay. Well, uh, but it was a thrill playing against, or not playing against, excuse me, um, <laughs> playing for the, the greatest of all time. Ken Jennings is just a giant in this game. He's so good. I think I will say as an aside this week uh, that we're taping this show is um, uh, Anderson Cooper. And one thing I noticed right away was just the difference in the comfort level of somebody who talks for a living. And I, I feel for what people like Ken Jennings and, and others who, you know, really don't have any experience on camera or, uh, you know, with a microphone or having to, you know, talk. It, it, it's a little bit of a talent. And I, I do see a real smoothness in Anderson Cooper, though I don't have any reason to believe that he would be back as a regular full-time host. Yeah, he's very, very smooth. And I, I'm really impressed at how quickly he picked it up. Um, yeah. Really, I've been impressed with almost all of the hosts. I think sure. Aaron Rodgers in particular, I was nervous about. Yeah. I thought, you, you don't do this. You're, you're not a, you're on TV, but you don't talk on TV for sure. a living. Um, exactly. But I thought he did a great job. Yeah. From your notes, I learned that uh, you actually take five episodes a day. I was sort of under the impression it was only three episodes a day that they did. Five a day is just phenomenal. And again, going back to Alex, I can't imagine how he was doing that when he was as ill as he was. But I will say, by the way, that there were times, and you can attest to this perhaps, that I could hear his voice, you know, really getting tired. And I attributed that to the fact that they, I was thinking they were doing three a day, but I can imagine by the fifth one, he must have been downright exhausted. I have to imagine you're downright exhausted. And I do video production. That's my business. So I'm just fascinated to see how in the world uh, they do five episodes a day. And can you walk us through the process? So, you know, how does the day go? What time do you get there? What happens um, step by step until you go home that day? What's it like? Sure, absolutely. Uh, the contestants are asked to assemble at 7 a.m. at the Sony studio. Uh, during normal times, the contestants all stay at the same hotel 
and take a shuttle together. But because of COVID, there was no shuttle. So we were on our own to get to the TV studio. On my first day, this is crazy. I, I ran late. I had forgotten my belt in the hotel room and I went back to get my belt and I texted a contestant coordinator and said, I'm so sorry, I'm running late. And she said, don't worry about it, it's fine. But it, it's a strange thing to be late to. It's like being late to your wedding. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was a little frazzled. The contestant coordinators do a really good job corralling a bunch of introverted nerds and trying to get them ready for the camera and uh, calm those nerves. I think for a lot of people, being on Jeopardy is the culmination of a lifelong dream. And that comes with a lot of anxiety. Um, most people, I think, probably haven't been on TV before, don't really know what to expect, and they don't want to crash and burn. I, I thought that way for sure. So I think the orientation process is to educate the contestants about the rules, but also to calm the nerves. You're not going straight into taping. You're getting to sit for a little while to learn about the show and to prepare yourself mentally, I think. So, to, so hang on just a minute. So you get there at 7 a.m. or in yeah. your case, 7.15 or 7.20. Right. <laughs> and this is how, uh, how how nerdy I am about Jeopardy. So you get a cup of coffee, you get breakfast, you know, do they give you some food? And then I'm also curious, then there's an orientation where they actually go over the rules and, and so on. So Right. Um, other than the breakfast part, because of COVID, no food, no drink. We oh. were on our own to supply everything. Gotcha. Uh, so I was armed with several bottles of iced coffee, which I think were very helpful okay. to get me through the day. They take the contestants who have assembled at about 7 a.m. and they ushered us into the Wheel of Fortune studio okay. um, to do the orientation. Usually, I think they do it in a uh, something like a green room in the Jeopardy studio, okay. but they wanted to space this out. Sure. Uh, for social distancing reasons. And so we got to hang out in the Wheel of Fortune studio, which is right next to the Jeopardy studio. And that was really cool. We got to see the big wheel. wheel when no one was looking? They're, they were very, very careful to tell us if you touch the wheel, you will be just <laughs> You're going home. <laughs> right. Uh, so we all wanted to, obviously, but we mm. were too scared. Um, orientation lasts a while. I There were a few things that sort of surprised me in orientation that I didn't know. One was um, the importance of definite articles when answering about uh, works of art. For example, the book The Invisible Man is different than the book Invisible Man. Oh, okay. Usually if you add the word the or a, it's not a big deal. But if it becomes a different work, then that's a problem and you'll be marked wrong. Sure. They told us that in orientation and that ended up being an issue in one of our clues where the correct answer was invisible man, but uh, the contestant had rang in with the invisible man. Okay. Um, so that was a little funny foreshadow. No, uh, I make that moment, mistake at home often and I, I say, oh, probably they won't allow that. So. Right, I, I just sort of mumble it when, when I'm <laughs> playing along at home. Yeah. Invisible right. man, right. Yeah. I don't remember which one is which. Sure. Um, so orientation lasts for maybe an hour and a half. Uh, the contestants get their makeup put on. This was my first time wearing makeup. That was sort of fun. And then you go to the Jeopardy studio and you uh, you practice buzzing in in a mock game with your fellow contestants. Okay. You don't get a lot of time to practice, maybe five minutes per person or so. Okay. But that gives you some reassurance in terms of timing that you're able to actually get in on the buzzer. Because the buzzer is so important. 
Sure. Oh, uh, let me stop you there for a second, because yeah. I think, again, I'm just nerd, nerding out on this right now, as you can see. What is the buzzer actually like? Is there a lot of resistance? Is there a little resistance? You know, how do you, how do you feel about that? Because I you see people like doing the multiple tap, yeah. and then you got people who just do the single tap. And what, what was your technique? And how did you find the actual feel? Of yeah, it? I actually misspoke. It, it, they, they call it a signaling device rather than a buzzer, right. because nothing actually buzzes. Sure. But that's a pedantic point. Although... For Jeopardy, I guess it's okay to make pedantic points. The way a lot of successful contestants have practiced uh, with the signaling device is to use the spring-loaded thing that holds your toilet paper in the toilet paper holder. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And that's about the level of resistance you get, and that's about the size of the signaling device also. I had read a book that told me that this is this is so nerdy to get in the weeds about <laughs> signaling devices. Really, I'm really getting into the details here. <laughs> right. But the, the book said you should try to minimize movement and really just try to move your thumb. And that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot more energy to right. um, move your entire arm than it does to move a single digit. Yeah. And so I tried to stabilize the signaling device and just um, buzz in when I could with my uh, with my thumb. Oh, now wait, um, I have to interject here because mm -hmm. as a clarinetist, of course, you don't use your thumb that much. So, uh, so that didn't really help. And I was just thinking your, your uh, digital dexterity is probably better than most. Was that a Oh, factor? that's an interesting point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Clarinetists don't really use their thumb very often. Yeah. Um, so no, no leg up on that front. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I felt like I was pretty comfortable on the signaling device. They tell you to keep ringing in in case you got locked out. So when the host reads the clue, you're not allowed to signal until after the host is done. Right. And if you signal too early, then you're locked out for a quarter of a second. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't sound like a lot of time, but uh, is pretty significant. So you really don't want to be early. Yeah. But in case everyone gets locked out, you want to keep pressing the signaling device to make sure that you're able to pick it up on the rebound. Okay. Oh, that's, and so that's why you see some people just absolutely going crazy matching on that thing. So. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the contestant coordinators told us during orientation, just keep pressing it. All right. So we're going through the day and uh, we're in orientation. You've learned the buzzer, you've learned the rules, right? Yep. And so you're starting to get a little more comfortable in the environment, right? Yeah. So, uh, so what happens next? Um, then there's a little bit of downtime as they prepare the studio for the first group of contestants to go on. We all by now know who the defending champion is, and we're all sort of trying to size each other up a little bit. Is he and or she in the group with you, by the way, at this point? Yes, yeah. So the defending champion from my day uh, was a professor from Minnesota named uh, Jennifer Lindy, and she was the nicest person, and she... She was really good at making all of us feel welcome and uh, try to calm our nerves. And I really appreciated that. Oh, good. Nice. Uh, yeah, we, we were all aware that she had won one game. And that made me feel a little bit better. I didn't want to be in a situation where there was a Ken Jennings on who had won like 70 games. That would have been uh, oh, sure. both disheartening oh, and intimidating. Exactly. Those are two very good words. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... We knew that Jennifer would be in the first episode. Oh, by the way, little did you know, though, that you would soon be making someone else feel both disheartened and intimidated. <laughs> Indeed, but that, that was way later in the process. Okay. So uh, at that point, I was just trying not to puke. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. So the, for the other two contestants who would face off against Jennifer, the, there's some sort of a random selection process. I'm not exactly sure 
how it works, but the coordinators announced, all right, the two contestants who will be facing our defending champion are um, person A and person B. Then they take the three contestants who are about to go on, they give them a visual check, make sure their makeup is in place and their hair looks good. And then they march the three of them into the studio as a pack. And then all the other contestants get to go to the studio to watch the game. Okay. And I was not among the first group of contestants called, so I got to watch a game. And that was really good for settling the nerves, I think. I got to see the gameplay. I got to see Ken Jennings do his thing and be charming. And um, I felt like, oh, I, I know a lot of the responses to the clues that are being asked in this game. Uh -huh. um, I, I don't think I'm going to fall flat on my face on the stage. OK. Um, OK, so this is interesting to me. So then once you go through that process, now you're sitting in there, you're watching the game that's going to happen before you. So you actually get to see then the person who you're ultimately going to be um, playing against. That's right. So you, you should exactly see them. Okay. And is that advantageous, would you say? There can be advantages to it. I think if they do something weird with a wagering, that might be something you might want to pick up on okay. for a Final Jeopardy strategy. But there's there's not that much time to prepare in between. So I think it's only psychological rather than um, any real benefit. So now the next thing that happens is that you are called up, you're up, Brian. You're exactly, up, then, right? then, then they call Brian Chang. They called Brian Chang for the next game. Okay. Um, so I was on the second game taped uh, that day okay. and uh, they gave me the visual check. They ushered me onto the stage and, and away we go. And what time of day was that by that point, would you say? By that point, it was probably about noon okay. um, for the second game. Okay. And is there lunch break, by the way? Uh, between the third and fourth game, but okay. uh, we were running a little behind. So for us, between the second and the third game. All right. So, oh, I did have a question. I asked a few people if they had any questions that they wanted to ask you. So one question oh, that sure. came up that, that falls into this was um, clothing choices and wardrobe colors. So you you have to bring a change of clothing. I assume what five changes or three or right the outfit you've got and then four additional outfits in four case additional. you're in all five episodes okay. taped that day. And they tell you to stay away from any colors or any anything. Yeah, uh, patterns that tend to um, more is the word. More, thank you. <laughs> um, they they also said no white. Um, yeah, plain white doesn't um, do doesn't very well on video TV. Very well, yeah. But other than that, not a whole lot of guidance, just business okay. casual yeah. um, to business formal type stuff. I'm Sometimes not a very- people look so awkward. I wondered if they had like a big closet of clothes there that they think, here, put this on, you know, it's like, I imagine that's just people's awkward wardrobes at times. It, in my case, it was my awkward wardrobe. I, I'm not a particularly fashionable dresser and I, um, I was trying to figure out what I was gonna wear. And I saw a picture of another contestant wearing an orange sweater and I thought oh well that looks good maybe I'll wear an orange sweater <laughs> um, so that's why I wore on my first day okay well good good I did see you on the on the very program but I did not review it prior to talking to you today so I'm going to be anxious after we're done actually to go and, and review your games so because they're on YouTube I believe right um I think they recently got taken down off of YouTube oh really okay yeah copyright issues um I oh. think there are some clips but but not the okay. entire episode all right all right, so now we've pretty much made it through the day. We've made it to where they call Brian Chang. You're up there. We know what you're wearing. 
I want to ask you how you felt after the first win. But before yeah. you answer that question, just how did you feel getting there? Were you comfortable, kind of comfortable? Uh, what was going through your mind, if anything? Or is it all just a big blur? And then how did you feel after that first win? It felt like a little bit of a blur. Actually, a, a lot of a blur. They tape a single game in about half an hour. Yeah. So it's close to what you see on Excellent TV. Real time. Real time. They, they take the commercial breaks um, in close to real time. And during those breaks, the host has an opportunity to repeat any clues that uh, he or she mispronounced. Okay. But other than that, it's pretty close to real time. And it just goes by really, really quickly. I remember um, thinking it was pretty cool when I watched my episode actually air on TV that I didn't remember most of the clues. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was sort I of can a imagine. Surprise. I can imagine that. So that's um, how it was for you. So you just, you know, when you look at it, oh my God, I didn't even remember I answered that question, right? Exactly. Okay. So were you surprised when you won? Were you like so confident yeah. that you were like, oh, this is exactly what I imagined? And what was your feeling? So I think everyone's wildest dreams is to have a runaway victory, which means that the second place contestant can't mathematically catch right. you right. In, um, in Final Jeopardy. And that was the situation that I found myself in. Okay. And so long as I didn't screw up the math, I would be a winner. And I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is crazy. Yeah, so you were home free in Final Jeopardy then. I was home free, and that's when my hand started shaking, and that's when it started hitting, uh, dawning on me, like, wow, you're you're actually going to win a game of this this cool. crazy show. And how much did you win the first game? Do you remember? I don't. You know, I don't. Somewhere yeah, between I don't ten either. and twenty. <laughs> yeah, I remember very little about it except that I read the final Jeopardy clue, and then I froze. Okay. I had no idea what the response was, and so I sort of took the opportunity to um, to sort of jab Ken Jennings a little bit, uh, but really pay homage to him. Yeah. Tell us about the, the answer that you gave. Uh, I wrote down um, what is H&R Block, which right. I knew was not the correct answer. Yes. Uh, but that is sort of a famous uh, response in Jeopardy trivia lore, uh, because that was the correct answer on the day that Ken Jennings lost his 75th episode. Yeah, that was he amazing. He wrote what is um, FedEx instead of what is H&R Block. And yeah. so he, he ended his 74 game win streak. Yeah. Uh, by the way, were you surprised at that? Because I was quite surprised at the time. I remember it just seemed like it was a gimme answer, but it just goes to show you there never is a gimme answer on here. You think it is, but I think that's right. And it, it also goes to show that anyone can win or anyone can lose any given game. At any given, you know, and that's true of most high level competitions, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. it's it's really anybody's game at any moment when they, when everybody is really playing at their best and that's exciting it's fun to see that so it was kind of a blur for you but you won your first game and now you're going right into your second game right the going right into the second game that's right they they unmiked me they said you have two minutes to go to the bathroom and change your outfit and then get back on stage two minutes really uh, but that might be a little bit of an No, no, okay, but see, like even minutes. five minutes, 10 minutes, but right. the point is you you a very quick turnaround time, you're back in, and then how many games did you play that day? I ended up playing four games that day. Four games, which is, yeah, I mean, that, okay, so at the end of four games, how the heck were you, were you exhausted? Was it, I, I can't imagine, now, uh, you're, you are an attorney, am I? I am. Am mm -hmm. I right? So you've done the bar exam, right? <laughs> right. How did this, how did this compare? for, you know, Jeopardy games compared to, say, the bar exam? I mean, it sounds crazy that these 
little half hour episodes are so um, physically draining, but they really are, I think, because you're concentrating harder than you've ever concentrated. That's, that's on why I asked the question. Before. It's crazy, yeah. Yeah, even with the bar exam, I think it, it's more of a, 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 a slow, you, you have time to think in between, but it, it's not a constant 100% pain. Well, and it's predictable. You know, exactly. Yeah, and this is totally unpredictable. So, and that's why I mentioned it because you know one would imagine the bar exam to be quite a, a grueling ordeal in itself, but I can imagine for four episodes back to back of Jeopardy, you know, it's got to be comparable. Yeah, the bar exam is not nearly as fun as you might imagine. <laughs> so, um, I remember uh, in my final episode, I didn't get a chance to use the restroom ahead of time. And I think that may have helped me a little bit in terms of staying awake. I, I don't know. The final episode of that day. Of that day, that's right. Okay. Oh, yeah, because by this time, you're pretty fatigued, but you're also just tired. You, you probably didn't sleep well that night, and now you're up at 7 in the morning, and, uh, and yeah. you've just gone through a long, grueling day. You've got to be you know, pretty tired. So, so uh, how did it go that evening, then? Were you, were you pretty pumped when it was over? And oh, yeah. Did you, did you sleep well? Yeah, I, I sure did. And you're right. The night before, I was basically unable to sleep. And I've heard the same thing from most people who have been on Jeopardy, that the night before, try as they might, they've got their little rituals, they, they might take like an echinacea or something um, to help with sleep, but it, it never works. Your mm -hmm. mind's just racing the night before. Yeah. My final game that day ended in a tiebreaker. And so it was a particularly long game. And okay, so good. I wanted to... Game. I wanted to talk about that. So that was uh, with um, uh, Jack Weller from- Jack Stanford. Weller, that's right, a so law student um, yeah, in California. Yeah, very rare tiebreaker. So tell us about that. You you had a lot of exciting things going on here. Very I, I sure did. So you had Ken Jennings for basically the first uh, couple episodes without Alex Trebek. You got Ken Jennings as your host. You uh, in the middle of a tiebreaker, uh, it's, it's amazing. So uh, how did that tiebreaker go? Yeah, we played a very, very close game, Jack and I did, and we both finished um, the Double Jeopardy round with $18,800, and we both went all in on Final Jeopardy, and we both got it correct, so that sent us to a tiebreaker where the winner would win $37,600 and get to come back for the next episode. Sudden death, winner takes all, first one to buzz in, exactly. gets to answer the question, if you get it right, you win, if you get it wrong, you're your Charlie. You win a $2,000 Constellation prize, which isn't bad, but it's perhaps not what, what one dreams of when, when going on Jeopardy. What was the question? Do you remember? I don't remember the exact wording. It was something um, about a Russian leader whose body got displaced from a tomb, I think, to for Stalin's body. Something along those lines. Okay. I, I'm not sure I really parsed it very well in the moment, but all I could think is Lenin. And so I happened to signal first, and I said, who was Lennon? And, and then I won. Awesome. And so that ended your first day. And that ended my first day. It was sort of a bittersweet feeling, because Jack was, I think, one of the best contestants that I played against. It sort of didn't seem fair that he would go home without a win and with sort of the Constellation Prize rather than um, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and it sort of stings that he's a law student. And I, I know when I was a grad student, I could for sure use a, a few tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> yeah, for, exactly, yeah. for even just for books, but law school is expensive. Sure. Uh, but he, he was a real champ about it. We, we've stayed in touch, really nice yeah. guy. But you know, it is a competition. And as you said earlier, 
you know, at any given moment, anybody could win or lose. And I always think it's kind of rough for when you see a really close game and a really good player, you think, wow, it's, this is their one and only chance. It's really too bad that. that yeah. The lost. one and only, I think is the toughest part. Uh, yeah. The rules are that you're not allowed to come back on the show. Wow. So literally once in your life, you're allowed to be on Jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I could see where you would feel for him as a fellow contestant. And you guys did, you have stayed in touch a little bit and, and have you stayed in touch with some of the other contestants as well yeah i think we we've all gone through this sort of fun shared opportunity together and it's it's people who tend to share similar interests people who tend to be a little bit bookish a little bit nerdy it's just sort of easy to stay in touch yeah. in the episodes that i played there were a disproportionate number of lawyers and so those are people who i i want to stay in touch with both uh, personally and professionally sure Absolutely. You, I had another question from someone who had asked about your interaction between you and other contestants. You've kind of answered that question, but it doesn't sound like you have too much time outside of the orientation to really spend any time together because then you're pretty much hustling to get ready for the next episodes. But uh, do you get a little time to spend and did you go out to lunch together? Did you, here's my third food question, but uh, yeah, um, the studio provides lunch. Usually it's at their fancy cafeteria, uh, but again, COVID changes everything. Right. So we got these catered meals that were sort of similar to what you might get on an airplane. Not like the best meal I've ever had, but sure. fine for sustenance purposes. Yeah. Uh, but we all ate together, sort of socially distanced. And, and that was nice to get a break. Um, I talked to a, a woman who works at uh, Facebook and we found out that we had some mutual friends in common. Uh, we both went to international schools at some point in our lives. She went to an international school in Jakarta. I spent a year at an international school in Japan when I was in middle school. Um, and, and that was sort of fun, just bonding over that. Awesome. Well, that's great. Uh, now, you actually played eight games because you won seven, right? So you, you played right. eight games. You, you lost your last game, obviously. Yep. Everyone always loses their last game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what was your most cringeworthy moment? Was there anything that you wish you could do, have a take back or a do-over or just? Yeah, there was a $2,000 clue in either my sixth or seventh game. And the clue was basically a picture of Dave Chappelle. And the clue was something like, identify this person. Mm -hmm. And I just froze and I felt like an idiot. Tip of my tongue, I just couldn't come up with his name in the moment. And I thought, well, that's okay. It's Dave Chappelle. He's like a famous person. Someone else will get it. And then I can just pretend like, oh no, they beat me to the city. Yeah, right, right. But embarrassingly, uh, neither of my opponents. Nobody either. I think I remember that because Dave Chappelle is one of those people who, you know, I kind of choke on his name too. It's sort of like, see my, oh, I know who he is, but like his name doesn't just come right immediately to me. So I, I think I remember that very moment myself. I think I joined in with you all. The internet was pretty kind, actually. They said, oh, you know, that picture didn't really look that much like Dave Chappelle. And on the show, the the pictures are pretty small. It might be hard to see. Uh, that that was very nice of them to say, but none of that was true. The picture was large enough. I certainly recognized the face. I just yeah. could I'm really bad with associating faces with names. Oh, just frozen me that too. That's, that's the worst for me. You made me think of something, though, too, which is what does the, so when you see the screen, do you have a, is there a monitor out in front of you? Do you have your own monitor or is it one big monitor that you're all looking at? Or? Here's the crazy part. The, the big board that you yeah. see on TV, 
each clue comes up in one individual cell of that yeah. big monitor. That's the only place it shows up for the contestants. Oh, it is. So you really, yeah, if you've got bad eyesight, you could be at a disadvantage, huh? You're in big trouble if you've got bad eyesight. You, even wearing contacts, I had to like really stare, I think, to, to get the wording. So that's curious. I, yeah, it's something I've always wondered about. Are you actually seeing that board? Or I, I just kind of assumed you had a little monitor in front of you, but that's not the case, huh? Yeah, the, the monitor in front of you is just to write down your wager and your sure. uh, response in Final Jeopardy, but nothing else shows up on that monitor. Okay. You know, as a, as a video guy, these things are kind of interesting to me. I've been in studios, but you don't always get to see these things, so. Yeah, TV magic. Yeah, absolutely. So now you're, you will be in the tournament of champions, but because you missed the cutoff, you're not going to be in the next tournament of champions coming up. Right. So you'll be in the next one. So we may not see you until 2022, right? Could be 2022, could even be 2023. Really? They tend to have TOCs, uh, tournaments of champion every two years or so okay. um, to ensure that there are enough people who have won um, the requisite number of games. Yeah. To qualify, the next one is going to be on the air. I think within the next month or so, okay. which is pretty exciting. I'm looking forward to that. And then you'll be in the one, whatever the one is after that. So exactly, uh, that'll be exciting. We'll be looking forward to that. Uh, there's been a number of Chicago area Jeopardy contestants, but probably none as well known as James Holzhauer, actually from Naperville, who has won 32 games and then also won the Tournament of Champions. Uh, have you met him? I've met him online. We have a few mutual friends. And uh, while my um, episodes were airing, we got a chance to play a few games um, over the internet, which was a lot of fun. Oh, good. Okay. Now, he's a sports gambler, as most people know, and he's very aggressive. And I think he really, really sort of, at least during the time that he played, it really changed the betting strategy of the game, or at least showed us that betting strategy is part of the game. Sometimes his betting strategy seemed a little arbitrary. He would pick random numbers that he said were based on people's day, um, birth dates, et cetera, if I remember correctly. Right. But he's very aggressive at times, doing all-ins when people tend to want to hold back and keep a thousand or a couple hundred or whatever. I, I think the, the trend recently has been that if it's in the Jeopardy round, which is the first round, as opposed to double Jeopardy, which is the second round, there's more people going all in on the first round now, I think, regardless of how much money they have. But uh, what was your strategy like? And I guess I'll just throw this as one of my compound questions I said I like to ask, but yeah. is that, you know, the other thing that James Tolsauer, I think, brought to the game that we, we didn't see a lot of before was the idea of, of choosing questions from the bottom up, like going with the higher or the higher, yeah, uh, higher value, maybe yeah, the higher denomination um, questions first. So did you learn anything from his strategy? Did it affect you in any way? And then what was your own personal strategy? Yeah, absolutely. I think James really changed the way the game is played. Yeah. And I, I tried to play a similar strategy to him. I, I'm not able to replicate it because I'm just not as good at trivia as he is. Mm -hmm. um, but I think habitually contestants under wager on daily doubles. Um, I played a fair number of practice games with friends leading up to the show. And one thing that we figured out pretty quickly is if you find the most daily doubles in a game, you're much, much more likely to win the game. And that's, I think, a function of the 
ability to double up is mm -hmm. yeah huge. it's the randomness it's the same playing blackjack you know right uh, if you don't take advantage of the opportunities of double down you're you're, you're never going to get ahead and i think you need to know how good you are at an average daily double the, i would say that the average jeopardy contestant is well over 50 percent on any given daily double and so that means that on average you're going to win um money when you um when you hit a daily double uh, which implies that you should be wagering as much as possible. I think daily double strategy is very similar to fourth down strategy in football, where it often would be better for coaches um, just not to punt, to go for it more regularly on fourth down than they really do. But Jeopardy contestants don't want to look foolish and end up with zero dollars. Right. The same way that coaches have incentives not to do um, strange things that might get them fired. Sure. Yeah. Uh, um, and so when it's like a fourth and five from your own like three, the correct play mathematically might be to go for it, but very few coaches are willing to do that because of sort of the metagame considerations. Sure. Um, and I try to not let that affect me and just sort of stick to my game and say the default, unless I have a good reason, ought to be just go all in on a daily double. Yeah, unless you're in a category that just you just know you're not, and, and you'll see Holzhauer do the same thing, is that, you know, you can tell when this is a category that he didn't want any part of, then he, right. he would not go in. But if it's something that you feel relatively confident about, then you should you should go for it. And um, I think, you know, that that's become obvious through him particularly, but I think he has affected other players. And so interesting to hear what your strategy uh, was. Yeah, I don't think it's been that pervasive though. I it, it surprised me that more contestants aren't doing what James. No, it's did. it's has started to cool off. I think it it yeah. at least as a as a viewer, I sort of saw people being more aggressive after he was on, and maybe against him. Uh, but I've noticed in the last you know many months that the it's kind of back to how it used to be. People are playing the four hundred. Uh, dollar clues first and working their way down the board uh, right you know where his strategy was very much to rack up as much dollars as he could early on get those big numbers or steal them away from other people you know in other words uh put them out of reach by getting rid of those big numbers so uh, right there's two advantages i think to going bottom up rather than top down um the first is that you'll have more money when you hit a daily double and that enables you to maximize the value of a daily double. Good point. The second is you're more likely to find a daily double because they tend to be on the bottom of the board yeah. rather than at the top. Interesting. So it's something a lot of people just don't think about when it comes to Jeopardy. I've spoken to people and they just didn't even realize that that the betting strategy was something that you had to worry about, but it is. Yeah, it's this um, interesting tension where I think um, some purists want Jeopardy to just be a contest of trivia skills. Sure. Or, um, or knowledge. And that's not quite what it is. I think a fair number of contestants I played against know a lot more than I do and are better at trivia than I am. But it, it's a game fundamentally and the daily doubles and the wagering make the game interesting. And I think that you see this on a regular basis where people make really strange moves in wagering, especially in Final Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And th that's one area where I wish contestants would spend just a little bit more time studying. I was just, I'm glad you mentioned, because that was going to be my next question is that, uh, so I sort of understand what the, there is a basic strategy to it. And I mm -hmm. imagine you applied that, but what were you, 
you know, anything you want to share about the Final Jeopardy betting strategy? Yeah, yeah. There are a few websites that sort of uh, talk you through the scenarios that one can encounter. It, it takes some time to grasp. I um, spent maybe an hour or two looking that over on my plane ride out to LA. It, it's not rocket science. I think if you're good enough no. to be on the show, you can learn it. But there also tends to be a tendency to glaze over math unless you're like a real quantity person. And that's why I'm that's why I'm avoiding actually getting into the details of it here now for our listeners yeah. who hopefully are still with us at this point. And I do appreciate you uh, going through all this minutia with me because I'm enjoying it. Of course. Uh, but that, that betting strategy is something that I even have trouble explaining to somebody when I'm watching with somebody. I say, well, you know, contestant so-and-so is going to do this because they're in this situation. But there is a strategy. And there is a strategy. And there's some levels to it. Like the, the Princess Bride scene uh, where, like, he knows that that this cup is poison and so he's not going to take that one and right. so forth. But I think just understanding those considerations is, is something important to do before you go on the show. Sure. Um, and, and wagering for sure is going to come up for you on the show. You're going to play Final Jeopardy. Whereas if you're studying um, the monarchs of England, that might come up on a show. I think it would probably come up maybe 5% of the time. But mm -hmm. wagering is going to come up 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, take the time to learn the wagering game before you learn yeah. Um, Henry the and it's obvious that some players have not read that little bit that you were talking about because some people yeah. are going, oh my god what were you thinking you know yeah uh, anyway that's uh interesting and and for our listeners anybody who's interested they could read up on the on the final betting strategy we touched on this but i think the last question probably in terms of jeopardy is uh uh, so who do you think will succeed Alex Trebek? And do you have a favorite or a prediction on that? Or is it too hard no, to tell since we're not through them all yet? I'm probably biased toward Ken because we spent a fair amount of time together when I was taping. But I think he understands the show and I think he would do very, very well with it. But I think almost all of the guest hosts would do just fine with it. I think sure. the important thing is just to have someone who who lets the contestants be the stars of the show rather than the host himself. I think that was something that Alex Trebek was very keen on, um, keeping in mind that he was not the star of the show. And it has to be somebody who loves the show because I've seen game shows where it's obvious that they're becoming bored with it. I think Alex just enjoyed playing the game and watching the game every day like those of us who are fans do and i think ken jennings will bring that as well to the table and we'll just have to wait and see how that goes so i want to take just a second to say that this is reno lovison i'm executive producer at chicagobroadcastingnetwork.com i'm talking with seven-time jeopardy champion brian chang who's an attorney living in lakeview on chicago's north side and i want to talk a little bit now about windy city winds uh and then and then before we conclude i just like to ask my guests to play along with a few Chicago trivia questions, which in your case is probably more than appropriate. And I appreciate you playing along with us. Absolutely. Um, now, first, Windy City wins. As I mentioned to you, your fellow bass clarinetist, Wes Salisbury, who sits next to you in Windy City wins, is one of my very best friends. And uh, he introduced me to, to uh, Mark Mosley, who is the Windy City wins co-founder, along with his wife, Sarah. Just uh, for people to understand, uh, you know, I have a video production company, and as a result, I have recorded all but a couple of the Windy City Winds um, performances uh, 
since the beginning, which has been about six years. So tell me a little bit about the bass clarinet and how did you happen to come to play it? How did you find out about Windy City Winds and anything you want to share with that? Yeah, I started playing the bass clarinet in college. I'd been a clarinet um, player in high school and I tried out for the orchestra in college and I was not quite good enough to get into the orchestra on clarinet, but the conductor said, if you're interested in playing bass clarinet, we've got a spot for you. And, and I think uh, he said, you've played bass clarinet before, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I had not. Um, yeah. But uh, my, my college let me borrow bass clarinet. I sort of figured it out. It's not that different than the clarinet, which I was sort of pleased to learn. And it, it's a pretty fun instrument that's sort of always in demand because not that many people own bass clarinets. Mm -hmm. And it, it's got a little bit less of the of the spotlight than the the normal clarinet sure. does but it, it's it's fun it's it's weighty it's uh it's got gravitas to it okay. and i really enjoy the instrument and tell me uh, how it fits in and uh and also for our listeners so the bass clarinet uh where does it fit like in the hierarchy of the saxophones and the other sure you know yeah, it's pitched one octave lower than a traditional clarinet. Okay. And so it's one of the uh, lower instruments in the woodwind section. It's comparable to a bassoon um, or a baritone saxophone in terms of its range. So one of the lowest instruments. It plays parts similar to what a, um, a cello or a bass might play in a string orchestra. Um, and I find those parts very satisfying. I think the, the deep rumbling sounds. Yeah, absolutely. But it is a beautiful instrument. And, and like you said, if you like those deep, dark tones, exactly, you get to play in that. Yeah, uh, so I played in a few groups uh, after college. And um, I was living in the Bay Area. And eventually, I made my way out here to Chicago and was looking for um, some groups where I'd be able to play really any instrument, whether clarinet, uh, saxophone, or bass clarinet. Sure. Um, and I happened to see a Craigslist ad for the Windy City Winds they were looking for a bass clarinet player. So I uh, emailed Mark Mosley and we had a quick chat and he said, yeah, we, we'd love to have you join the group, especially for someone new to Chicago. I thought it was a great way to meet friends um, and like-minded people who enjoy playing music. It's a really, really high quality group with a lot of great people who I have formed some pretty close friendships with. That's very nice. And how long have you been playing now with them? Uh, about four years now. Okay. Great. Uh, there aren't very many performance groups like them in Chicago. No, there aren't. No. And they, they're clearly filling a need that desperately needs to get filled. As I said to Mark in the previous episode, which you which you heard the podcast I did with them, you know, I remember hearing it, the the band for the first time and, and I was just like blown away. I thought this is, you know, they were a brand new band at that time and, uh, you know, sounded really pretty good right out of the gate. But they have been attracting a lot of good players such as yourself and uh, they seem to have the ability to put it together. And it, I, I just find it very satisfying myself to hear. So it's really, really difficult to start a group. I think harder than anyone really knows unless they've tried to start one themselves. So Huge kudos to Mark and Sarah for getting this thing off the ground. Well, and doing any anything in the arts is, you know, it's, it's a labor of love. Getting people, first of all, to play along with you is one thing, whether it's a theater group or whether it's a band or, or whatever it is you're doing. And then getting the audience, uh, 
in a place like Chicago, audiences are tough because uh, there's so many things that you can be doing on a given night and you have to choose which one to do. Uh, when you're, let's say, in a college town and, you know, Windy City Winds is the only thing going on Wednesday night, there's a good right. chance you're going to go check it out. But in Chicago, you know, there's 40, 50 other things vying for your time and uh, it, it's a challenge. But, it, but it's great. And I think uh, it's just nice to give people the opportunity to play and to give audiences a chance to hear things that maybe they wouldn't normally hear and to hear a live orchestra in a, a fully wind orchestra, which is unusual, uh, is really great. So let's get on to our fun part of the, our, or not that this hasn't been fun, but this has been tremendously fun for me in it. And I told Julie, I mean, one of the things, one of the main reasons I, I do this podcast is I said, yeah, I just want an opportunity to talk to people to, about stuff that I want to talk about. And uh, thank you so much for playing along with me because I think you can tell I, this is a topic that was very interesting to me and a lot of fun to hear about. And if nobody else cares about it, I don't care. I'm having fun. <laughs> well, I'm glad you care about it right now. Um, but it, I mean, Jeopardy is sort of at the top of this like American pantheon of game shows. I think there's a reason why it's popular and has had the longevity that it's had. Yeah. Um, because of people like you who really enjoy watching the show and learning about the minutiae of the show. Yeah, exactly. So now the part that you're just terrorized about, which is the, <laughs> the uh, couple of Chicago uh, quiz uh, quiz questions. I tried to keep in mind the idea that, you know, you're not a Chicago native, so I wasn't going to make this like totally obscure question. But you've been here for quite a while. Now you've been here at least six years, right? Yeah, about six years. You're, you're almost a native. So here we go. First question. Now, Sasha Baron Cohen was recently nominated for an Oscar. Actually, this weekend was the Oscars uh, in the movie Chicago 7 about the 1968 Democratic Convention. What was the name of the judge who presided over that famous trial? Oh, no, it's a Chicago law question that I don't know the answer to. <laughs> you know, I hadn't even thought about the fact that it was a law question. Oh, gosh. I, I don't even have a good guess for it. In the spirit of Jeopardy, I sort of gave you a little bit of a clue here, because do you know what part Sasha Baron Cohen played in the movie? Did you see the movie? I did not see the movie. Oh, okay. Did he play the role of the judge? No. No, but he played Abby Hoffman, who was, you know, one of the main, um, quote unquote, conspirators. And the judge's name was Julius Hoffman. Ah. Yeah, it would have been, that question would have gone over better had you seen the movie. Uh, Probably, yes. <laughs> There is a post on at chicagobroadcastingnetwork.com about my personal experiences at the 1968 Democratic Convention. I was 13 at the time, and I was there uh, for a brief period. And so on the 50th anniversary, I, brought, I wrote a little post about it. And there's also a great book um, called 1968 uh, something, most interesting year in the world or something like that. And I did a podcast on that. So you might want to take a look at those. Uh, okay. Um, Chicago streets are laid out in a grid pattern. So if you find your way around Chicago, you have to learn your hundreds. You have to learn where you are in Chicago. So uh, what downtown intersection is considered ground zero? Yeah, uh, boy, it's State and I want to say Madison. Okay, just so say it. State <laughs> Madison. What State is State Madison. Madison? State Madison, yep. So anything... North of Madison is north. Anything south of Madison is south. Anything east of state is east and west is west. 
And it's interesting, you may have noticed that, you know, most of the north side is all um, west. You know, there isn't, there aren't many streets east of State Street, but when you get on the south side, the city widens out on the south side. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, a whole lot more streets that are east. Yeah, I'm still learning Chicago geography constantly, but I like That's why I'm at. trying to help you. There you go. You I appreciate it. Thank you. Something to hang on to there. Let's see. One of Chicago's most popular attractions right now is in Millennium Park. It's a sculpture commonly referred to as the Bean. The artist says was inspired by liquid mercury. Mercury. Uh, what was the sculpture's official name? And as a bonus question, who was the artist? I believe the sculptor's name is Cloudgate. Um, yeah, very good. The, I, the next part is a bonus question, so if you don't know it, it's okay. For sure, I should know this. The name Calder is coming to mind, but I don't think that's right. No, but Calder, there is a Calder that's uh, the orange sculpture that looks sort of like a big um, uh, crane that's over by the uh, federal building. But uh, Anish Kapoor is mm. the, uh, and you know what? I don't, when I saw it, I said, oh, I know the answer to that, but I would not have been able to pull it out of my, my memory either. So I think it's fair um, game though for, yeah. for any good Chicagoan. <laughs> so final question, pizza thick or thin? Oh, thick. Thick. Easy. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what's your favorite place? Uh, Luminati's. Oh, Luminati's thick pizza. Okay. Good for you. And Italian beef or Chicago hot dog? Oh boy. Um, boy, how can you choose uh, Italian beef? I guess. Yeah. You know, it's really hard to choose in it. I love asking that question because every night I would have a different answer. It's like sometimes I just crave an Italian beef and then other times I think I only do hot dogs about two or three times a year. And, you know, and because of that, I it's like a craving. I go, oh, you know, what? I got to get a hot dog. I got to say, when I want a hot dog, I, I always have a craving for the Costco $1.50 combo hot dog and soda. It's such a good deal. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So it's not a traditional awesome. Chicago dog, but, yeah. you know. No, that's okay, though. The Costco dog is, that's that's your go-to place. That's okay. Absolutely. Well, listen, Brian, thanks so much. I mean, we did fill probably an hour here, but, you know, just thanks for, for playing along and thanks for just letting me sort of geek out on the details of Jeopardy. This is Reno Lovis, an executive producer at ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com, reminding you to please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast and or website to be alerted when new content is added. And as always, if you need video production for your business or organization, check out RenoWeb.net. Thanks to Jeopardy! champion Brian Chang for being our guest today, and be sure to look for him in the Jeopardy! Tournament of Champions, probably in 2022, but maybe 2023. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it so much. Thanks also to Julie Lovison, director of the Lakeshore Music Studio, for her rendition of I'm a Little Teapot, which was the inspiration for the Jeopardy! game show theme song arranged by Jeopardy! creator Merv Griffin. Incidentally, Julie played the part of Merv's piano teacher in a made-for-TV biography of his life. The scene was shot in her studio in the Gold Coast Old Town area. And if you're interested in piano lessons, no matter your age, visit lakeshoremusicstudio.com or call 312-335-8426. Now, let's listen to a few more bars of I'm a Little Teapot and see if you can hear the Jeopardy theme. 